0: We enjoyed a conference a couple of weeks ago. Uh, The themes were hermeneutics, an examination of the biblical understanding of hell, and the influence of Enoch 1 on New Covenant thinking. The large title, the main title of all these past conferences has been, How Shall We Then Live? When I went to the first one, I'm like, oh boy, I've got to find out the answer to this, because I had just come into preterism. I said, well, I understand that now let's see what we do now because i know it's different so and i've been examining that and this is a, a further examination of what i did last time uh, and i really think i've can't say i stumbled on something but the lord hath spoken to me and um, <laughs> um and we're going to use hermeneutical principles And we'll examine this question today. Let me ask you a question. You're going to have to participate to help me out because I'm not, you know. Um, To whom was the Bible written? Who? To 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 God's people. It was written to God's people, right? That's pretty good. That's very good. Now, let me ask you specifically, to whom was the Old Testament written? First covenant people, physical, natural Israel and Judah, the Hebrews, the Jews. Now, let me ask you this. Are we under the old covenant? No. How come? Because it wasn't written to us. It was written to those folks way back then. Way back then. Specifically, to whom was the New Testament written? True Israel, Christians, spiritual Israel, the church, in transition. Okay? <clears throat> Shall we be governed by that which is written to the saints in transition? Or did something change? Whew, we got quiet. <laughs> Remember, like the Old Testament, the New Testament, was, New Testament was not written to us, it was written for us. And we must use these hermeneutical principles when we examine these scriptures as well. In the passage that we just read, verse 13 says that the Old Covenant was near to vanishing away or disappearing. That was true to those people right then that the letter to whom the letter was written. It's not true of us 2,000 years later. The Old Covenant did pass away. It did vanish. And the New Covenant came about. It happened at A.D. 70 when the temple was destroyed with all the means to perform the rituals of the Old Covenant law. Although they had a guarantee, a down payment, an earnest of the promised inheritance, they had not received it in its fullness as we have. The new covenant was not fully manifested at the time of the writing of the scripture that we're getting ready to examine today. Justification, righteousness, grace rather than law, eternal life, immortality, the resurrection from the dead ones, being the very dwelling, yes, the tabernacle of God, part of the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. Life, face to face in the presence of God, eating of the tree of life in the garden of God sharing the very life of Christ among us, not just trying to live up to the Christian life expectations and principles. We learned that the primary rule of interpreting Scripture is the analogy of faith, or Scripture interprets Scripture. We'll see that in the passage that we're reading. For example, when God says he's coming riding on clouds in Matthew and other places in the New Testament, it's an Old Testament reference to him coming in judgment. It's not going to be physical, coming on a physical cloud, riding and getting ready to judge something. But this was the way that the language was structured in the Old Covenant to say that God was coming in judgment to a certain nation or people. We use the rules of literature. For example, soon means soon. You means you. Just like if we were doing it today, just like if we were speaking it today, it meant then what it means What it meant. We must pay attention to the original relevance to the specific audience to whom the particular passage is addressed. For example, this generation, some of you standing here, he's talking to the people standing right there in front of him. This generation, he's talking to those folks back then right there. We all agree. We can all agree to that. Um, In their lifetime right then, in the real, in the now, for those people right then. We must examine idioms, etymology, and usage. For example, when Jesus said he didn't come to destroy the law and the prophet, what this means is he didn't come to misinterpret them, to annul, to abrogate, or to discard. He, corre- he came to correctly interpret the prophets and the law. From Adam to Christ, God was revealing his will for man. As we look back from our vantage point as new covenant saints, we can see the unfolding revelation of his desire for fellowship and relationship with his creation. Let's first examine what we know of the new covenant. Our starting point is the book of Hebrews, chapter 8. It is in this passage the key to understanding our responsibility under the new covenant. Let me ask you this, to whom is this letter written, or to whom was this letter written? What kind of saints? What kind of saints? Hebrew saints. No. <laughs> <laughs> like oh no, 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 no. <laughs> it was written to Hebrews who were Jews who had accepted Yeshua as the Messiah and had taken hold of the new covenant. Um when was it written? Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> Amen, brother. <laughs> right on the wall. Yeah, it was written before the fall of Jerusalem, obviously, because they were still going to the temple. They were still worshiping in the temple. And the scripture says that it was about to pass away, that it was getting close to fading away, to disappearing. Um, in this passage is the key to understanding our responsibility under the new covenant. Um, and the the what was taking place at the time was that these Jews were going back to the law, to the prophets, to the Old Testament sacrifices and going back to the temple because that's what they were used to. They just really weren't quite getting a hold of this new thing. Chapter 8 says the covenant is not like the old covenant with Israel and Judah. In contrast, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Says the Lord, putting my laws in their mind and upon their hearts I will inscribe them. And I will be to them a God, and they will be to me a people. And no, they shall not teach their neighbor and their brother, that is, fellow citizens, saying, Know the Lord, because all will know me from the least to the greatest of them, because because I will be merciful toward their iniquities, their sins. No, I shall not remember any more. In saying new, he has made obsolete the first, that moreover is growing old and aging, near vanishing. This passage announces that the New Covenant had not yet manifested fully at the time of the writing, but was soon to be in effect as the Old Covenant vanished away. Unlike the Old Covenant, I see no role for the believer. It's all what God is going to do and how he's going to affect this. Um, He'll put his laws in their mind, understanding, intellect, insight. And by the way, this is not the Ten Commandments. He's not writing the Ten Commandments on their mind. He'll inscribe them upon their hearts, which is the desire, the producer that makes us tick, inner self, will, or intention. It's coming in an inner part that we might call the soul or the intellect or the will or however you want to say it. That's where the action takes place. He'll be God. And this is an an older even than the Old Covenant word. And it means the creator and the owner of all things, long before it was written. They will be to me a people. This is the usual term for the people of God. In the Septuagint, it's used 1,500 times. It refers to Israel. They shall not teach their neighbor or brother to know. Gnosko is the the Greek word there. And it's very important. To come to know, to learn, to realize, to understand. Um, we'll go into this a little bit more detail, but this is a type of knowing that comes from learning. It comes from rote memory. It comes from somebody telling you about something. Um, all will know, and the word there is a root of i do, i do, e i d o. It's the future tense of i do, which is mentally seeing, seeing that becomes knowing. It's a gateway to grasp spiritual truths. Gnosko comes from outside of a man. I do knowing from within the heart and mind possessed by God. Not the outside approach like the law was. But from the presence of God inside a man. He won't use that type of teaching anymore. The Gnosko type. Therefore, and this is what they were familiar with. They understood what these words meant. Hopefully. Therefore, there are two types of learning, teaching, understanding. And since the writer is also contrasting the old and the new covenants, we shall assume that these two types of instruction correspond to these two covenants. So this time he's going to use a different method to teach. Um, Let's illustrate this. The teaching of the old covenant is seen initially... I hope I don't cover this thing up. Um, In Exodus 18, verse 15, Moses, this is before the commandments were given, Moses answers his father, a father-in-law, Moses answered him, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and laws. Moses' father-in-law replied, What are you doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me and I will give you some advice. And may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them the decrees and laws and show them the way to live and the duties they are to perform. But select capable men from all the people, men to help you out. That's the old covenant way. God would speak to a man. Eventually, the Levites, the priests, prophets—those type of people—and they would bring God's message to the people. They would tell them about God. That's the old covenant way, which didn't how, how good did that work? Not too sharp. David and Kathy, <laughs> how you doing? David and Kathy can describe how blue and warm the water in Key Largo is, but next week we'll be there and swim in those waters. Then we will not just know about the experience, but we'll have a much deeper appreciation and understanding of the experience. You can you can just talk to your blue in the face, but if if someone doesn't experience it firsthand, what's the point? The old covenant saints had a superficial understanding of God. The new covenant, a personal confrontation with the living God in the heart and mind. Unfiltered and relevant. The old covenant describes a person. The new covenant introduces that person to you and invites you to make his acquaintance. That's knowing about God. Versus knowing God. These transition saints had this only partially. We now have it in fullness after A.D. 70. Um, When you see the word because, it means for or because. um, In verse 12, because, I'll do this because, I won't remember their uh, sins or iniquities, I'll be merciful to their iniquities, remember their sins no more. It introduces that connecting word, that conjunction, introduces a connect, uh, direct discourse related to the thing before. And we see that in every part of this section, this scripture. So they're all linked together in one. You just can't pull out a verse. If you pull out one, it's connected. So you get all the other ones together. This whole section is interrelated, and the individual verses cannot be separated out but must be seen as a whole. The writer is explaining the preeminence of the new covenant over the old and is encouraging the Jews who are returning to the temple system and the law to comprehend and embrace the better new covenant with its better promises yet to come. Uh, This is just an aside. Um, To show the manifestation of the process in Gentiles, those never exposed to the law, so we believe, We only have to look at Galatians chapter 3. Who fooled you? Do you think that having started in the spirit, you can use the law, flesh, to become mature? This indicates that the Gentiles at some time must have established a law for themselves, which is Romans 2.14, the Gentiles have a law unto themselves. Okay, hit that again. This is the primary, whoops. Now let's take a closer look for the, a closer look. A closer look for the word for sins. This is hamartia. It's used 173 times in the New Testament. By far, it's used more than any other word about sins. Strong says, this is a brand of sin that emphasizes its self-originated, self-empowered nature. He says, I'll forgive your sins. The sins of the old covenant were trying to obey it. That's the sin. Because you're doing it out of your own power, out of your own self. The New covenant's totally different. Um, it is not originated or empowered by God. That is, it is not a faith, His in-work persuasion. Romans 14.23 says, whatever is not a faith is sin. If it's not a faith, it's sin. So if where there's no faith, there's no sin. Where there's no law, there's no sin. I mean, where there's no faith, there's sin. Okay. Um, this same word is used in the Septuagint for sin or sin offerings. It's used extensively. This passage comes from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And it's funny because just before this passage, um, when God is prophesying what He will do, He says that He'll, uh, uh, take away the, the, uh, bitter taste of grapes on the Teeth of the children from the fathers. Um, When Jesus was crucified, they gave him sour wine, which is sour grapes. So this uh, generational curse is what they call that. The sons will inherit the curse to the father to the third and fourth generation. Jesus took the sour wine. Sour grapes, sour wine. It's done. There's no generational curse. Um, That was just that's just free. Um. This is the primary New New Testament definition of sins. The definition cries out to be interpreted as the very definition, go trying to keep the Old Testament law. Here's the rules we're operating under. Now do them. Through the law, we become conscious, that is, we have the knowledge of sin. The law lays out a list of do's and don'ts, but offers no assistance to obey them. You're left in your own strength to follow them. The law is the very root of the offense. It causes you to look at yourself and how you measure up to the standard and make appropriate adjustments to fall within its boundaries. Paul states that the sting of the death is the law. I mean, the sting of the death is the sin. The strength of the sin is the law. The first time we see this is the Garden of Eden. They had everything they needed, including fellowship with God, His very presence. But the prohibition not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was just too much for them to bear. Really? Only one rule. They couldn't... Oh. God had obviously created man with an inbred flaw. When confronted with law or rules, he tries his best to keep it, rationalizing when necessary. Well... This woman you gave me, this is the one that made me, you know. Let's look at the giving of the law. God says he took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt in the same passage we read. In other words, he was the one doing that. He had judged all the Egyptian gods with ten plagues. And what did the Jews do? What did they do? What was their part in that? They didn't have a part. He had opened the Red Sea and vanquished their enemies. He sweetened the waters of Marah so they could drink. Provided fire by night, it gets cold in the desert. And a cloud of smoke in the day, it gets hot from the sun in the desert. And all the way to Sinai, they murmured and complained. But God didn't judge them. They were still under the Abrahamic covenant. The covenant of promise. The covenant where God made a covenant with Abram. He put him to sleep. And made the covenant. Then he woke up and said, there's a covenant. What was his part in it? Nothing. As he did after the law was given, but only showed grace and mercy. What had they done in all these miracles? The Jews. Nada. Nothing. As they came to the promised land, spies were sent out to scout it. And even though God had promised to defeat the enemies himself and gave them the land, and give them the land, they were afraid saying the giants were huge. They couldn't handle them. Guess what? They were never asked to handle the giants. God said he would handle them. And he wasn't going to do it all at one time. He'd do it a little at a time. Lest the wild beast overtake you. Lest pride get in your eyes. That's my interpretation of that. Um, God would handle them. After all the actions on the part of God, thinking about the uh, the plagues, the Red Sea, Mara, all that stuff, um, they still look to themselves to do that which he continued to perform for them. God says they would not enter his rest. Surprise, surprise. God gives the Ten Commandments. It's funny, Jesus said, Come to me all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will rest you. If you say I will give you rest, then there must be responsibility on our part to receive it. But if He says I will rest you, He'll do it. God gives the Ten Commandments for which many still fight today. We got to have this in our schools. We got to have this in the courts. It's in the courts. It's in the schools. It's all over the place. No wonder the society is kind of messed up. But there's many who say, well, we've got to go by the Ten Commandments and they should not keep them, especially the first, no other God but Him. The Old Covenant said in brief, if you do good, you'll get good. If you do bad, you'll get bad from God. Most of society operates under these principles today and the rules vary by culture. Um, Romans 1423, which I have quoted before, whatever is not of faith is sin. What was going on was that uh, there was an argument over eating sacrificed meat to idols. Some thought that it was wrong to do that. Some thought it was cool. Uh, What is not of faith is sin. This defined strong definition of hamartia. Self-empowered versus God-empowered. In order to see how this helps us today, let's look at Two examples of New Covenant living. Get rid of this. How was Jesus our example that we should follow his lifestyle? What would Jesus do? And copy him. Isn't that kind of what they say? Jesus placed his total dependence on his Father. He did nothing out of himself. John 5.19 says, I tell you the truth, The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father's doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. And verse 30 of that same chapter says, By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear and my judgment is just but I seek not to please myself, but Him who sent me. Uh, And John 8, 28. 28. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me, he has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. And 15.4. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself, it must remain in the vine. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Neither can you bear fruit, Unless you remain in me, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, this is the good stuff here. I didn't even mark it. Isn't that something? First Peter. Uh, first Peter 2, which we heard a little bit from First Peter 2 earlier. This is verse 23. And it says, talking about, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins. All right, here is, he didn't make up his mind to resist to do something right or wrong. But he committed himself to the Father, allowed his Father to act through him. Luke 8 and 9. Where are you at, Luke? Luke 8 and 9. This is the the healing of the demon-possessed man, if you'll remember. The man from whom demons had gone out begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over the town how much Jesus had done for him. Hard to tell. Jesus said God had done this. The man says, I'm going to tell what you did for me. Either he recognized him as God, which I don't think so, but he saw the physical actions of the man coming out. Jesus said, this is God. Acts 2.22. This is Peter's first sermon. I didn't mark it, huh? 2.22. Men of Israel. Oh, that's right, because I typed it out. (laughs) Uh, You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God unto you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst, according as also ye yourselves has known. So it appears that Jesus didn't act on his own out of his not sinning but doing the right thing. But he lived by the life of another. How about Paul? What did he say about his concept of Christianity? Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified by Christ, but it's not me that lives anymore. It's Christ lives his life through me and I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave his life for me. When you say I live by the life, by faith of the Son of God, you can rightly say I live by God's Son's faith. It's a possessive, it's a, it's a, it's a different way to say the same possessive. He lives by God's Son's faith. 1 Corinthians fifteen nine and 10, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly, yet not I, but God who was working through me by his grace. He said, you know what, I'm, I'm nothing. He said, but I worked harder than all of them. But it really wasn't me, it was God. Although you might have seen on the exterior something happening, he's saying this is the process. In Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Ooh, weak Christian. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ might dwell in me. When you're weak and you know you can't do it, God's power does it. In the New Testament, the New Covenant, Philippians 2.13, for it is God who is working in you, enabling you both to desire and to work out his good purpose. So it is not our role to be successful, strong, and spiritual. God wants to show himself through us. How should you then live? The Greek in our passage gives us an answer to knowing, learning paradigms, and the definition of sin that is hamartia. Self-effort, self empowered He said, come to me all those toiling and being burdened and I will rest you. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. 1 Corinthians 15.54 tells us that the first Adam answered no to perfect dependence on Yahweh, sentencing not only himself but the whole human race to the death. He was a living soul. The last Adam, that is Christ Jesus, answered a perfect and eternal yes to Yahweh, giving the life to us. He's a life-giving spirit. Now, as children of the second Adam, Christ, just like the children of the first Adam, we are still choosing whether to present the works of our hands as Cain or the fruit of his life as Abel. Wood, hay, and stubble, the fruit of the ground from which we were made, are jewels, gold, and silver, That which emanates from deep inside, that which is unseen, not that which is seen. That's what true Christian life looks like. That's his behavior. When you see Cain and Abel deciding how they were going to bring a sacrifice to God, one brought the work of his hands. The other brought a life that God had provided. Um, My recommendation is life. This covenant is the new covenant. Kahinos is the word for new. A new creature, new wineskins, new Jerusalem. It means fresh, new in quality, novel, not in respect to age or time. It's something that's never been seen before. God does it all. It's the last or final, the eternal covenant. We do nothing outside of his action in and through us. Nothing is required of us that is not furnished by him. There's two systems in the world today. Kingdom of God and outside the kingdom of God. Dogs, sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters. Those who love and practice falsehoods. And those two systems, according to revelation, appear to be always like that. It's never going to get perfect. It's perfect for us. We're there. But these other people are outside. Where does that come from? Harmatiya. The sin of self-dependence. These last folks live by their own value system. They have rules that they claim to follow that makes them good people. They are living under a system of law. It comes from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, reasoning within one's faculties, self-originated, self-empowered, deciding how to live and operate in society. These people believe in self-effort as a means to please either themselves, others, or maybe God. They define their goals, success, accomplishments, and correct choices. Proclaiming their goodness by their good works. Again, the fruit of their hands, not of faith. So it must be sin. In contrast, the children of the kingdom fully rely on the life that is within them. Rather than being obedient to various rules, they submit to the obedience of faith. This could be as simple as relaxing from a religious struggle that is resting and trusting him to be who he is and to live his life in our daily activities. Where there is no law, there's no sin. Whatever if not of faith is sin. The strength of sin is the law. The law produces sin because it requires you to rely on yourself to keep it. And I'm talking the big L and the little L. The Gentiles are a law unto themselves, small l. And you can still operate under that small l, even being part of the church. And you see it every time you turn the television on. Ten, ten ways to have a successful marriage. Fifteen hints to have your children obey you. It's always some kind of rules. and It's never a life. They never preach the life. They always preach some kind of rules or formula. The transition saints could not follow this advice as they had not attained justification, righteousness, immortality. The presence of God had not come. They were not in a face-to-face relationship with him. They had no access to the Holy of Holies, that is Christ and his fully finished work. And they could not fully rest in and on him. We have returned to the garden and have the ability to eat of either tree. The one leads to death and misery, the other to life and freedom. The world system touts free choice, giving each person the ability to forge his own future and destiny. Destiny, this is not the biblical view. There is God's will in the Bible and in their self-will. You know where self-will is? Hamartia. Here's a list of terms to help describe the two systems. One focuses on self. The other focuses on Christ. There's one that focuses on rules and values. Another focuses on life. The other, the temporal or eternal. You can either go with performance or rest in faith. You can acknowledge the law and the consequences or you can take hold of mercy and grace. You either have choices from free will or you surrender and submit to God's will. The gospel of grace is the ultimate goal of God for his people and brings honor and glory for the Son, which is what he wanted from the very beginning. Are we really asked to do nothing of ourselves? That's the question you'd have when you read this. Focusing on Hebrews 8, 10-13, the writer's reference to the prophecy is Jeremiah 31. This is the announcement of the promised new covenant, We have examined Greek words used and their significance in understanding this text. Using hermeneutical principles, we see the following. New Testament wasn't written to us, but for us. It was written to the transition saints prior to the full manifestation, A.D. 70. The passage defines the new covenant totally done by God, the I wills. There's two ways to teach, know, learn, understand. That corresponds to the two covenants and the two experiences with God. Gnosko knowing and I do knowing. The means God was to use to bring about the other aspects of the new covenant is his refusal to remember their sins anymore due to the sacrifice that he had provided. The Greek hamartia, the word for sins, means a class of sin that is self-originated, self-empowered nature, not originated by God, not a faith, His inward persuasion. These two ways of living correspond to the two covenants, law and grace, and is still evident today. The transition saints had not received their full inheritance, that is, eternal life, completed tabernacle of God in his presence. Therefore, they could not be encouraged to live in the fullness of the new covenant. The scripture is clear that although it may look and feel like Jesus and Paul were living out their own lives, in fact, it was God living his life through them. Being aware of the two types of living, what is prescribed for us under the terms of the new covenant? There's two systems under which people live. Under a self-constructed law with its changeable rules and consequences, made from free choice, with self-rewards for successful performance, or the life of faith with the focus on Christ, not self, and what he has provided for us. Or as one man has said, The life of grace is a continually renewed attempt simply to believe that someone else has done all the achieving that is needed and to live in relationship with that person whether we achieve or not. It's even less than that. It's not even our life at all, but the life of that someone else living his life in our daily activities. Amen.